Blog Talk Radio. Good afternoon, Boston. Good afternoon, America. Chuck Morse here, host of Chuck Morse Speaks, Monday through Friday, 1 to 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, as I broadcast from Boston on Cyber Station USA Radio Network, Blog Talk Radio, and our affiliate stations, WWPR AM in Tampa Bay, KSKQ FM in Ashland, Oregon. Um, my guest this segment is Scott Phillips. He is a, uh, an economist. He's an author. New York Times bestseller Scott. Thanks for joining me. Oh, glad to be here, Chuck. Uh, Scott, just uh, in a, in a nutshell, could you describe, tell us about your um, list your latest books and projects? Sure. So the Templeton Touch um, is is our you know latest uh, book project, and basically this was a book that was first written in 1983. Uh, this was the first authorized biography on Sir John Templeton. It was originally written by a man named William Proctor. Uh, and just this year, a uh, revised edition came out, and I contributed a special section to this book, which uh, literally, you know, profiles uh, it, based on interviews with, um, you know, 22 different investment luminaries and, uh, you know, very famous investors around the world, such as Jim Rogers, Julian Robertson, uh, Mason Hawkins, Prim Watson, Steve Forbes, and it basically collects all of their thoughts. Um, on Sir John Templeton, and it shares uh, what he meant to them as investors, what uh, they learned from him, and it, it's just a really fascinating look into you know the life of Sir John and, and how he uh, you know not only achieved such great success, but also you know made uh, lasting impressions on some of today's great investors. Scott Phillips is our guest. Scott, how would you describe Sir John Templeton's? economic philosophy in the broad sense, but more specifically, uh, what would he say with regard to the market today, and uh, what should small investors and, for that matter, big investors look to in the coming years? <laughs> Those are a lot of questions, but, uh, you know, I think that, um, you know, basically, Sir John had a very simple philosophy as far as treating the market. He was once asked, you know, Sir John, you know, how do you time the market? When should I put money in? And he simply said, the best time to invest is when you have the money. And what he was speaking towards was no one can time the market. And the greatest gift of the market is compound interest. And in order to harness the full benefits of compound interest, you have to be invested. So he was always um, you know, putting money in. But as far as his you know, basic premise and philosophy as an investor, he was what he referred to himself as a bargain hunter. Um, you know, this is delineated out of the same school of investing as Benjamin Graham and Warren Buffett and others. He, you know, took uh, courses under uh, Benjamin Graham when he was a young man uh, back in the 1930s after he graduated from Yale. He was in, he set up his investment uh, council firm in New York and, and studied under Benjamin Graham. And so Sir John was the first uh, person to pioneer global investing. So he took all those value investing concepts, the idea of looking for bargains, looking for stocks that are trading less than their intrinsic value. He took those concepts and applied them worldwide, and he was the first to do it. And it was that, you know, pioneering effort that led him into some remarkably prescient 
investments, such as purchasing up stocks in Japan at three and four times earnings in the 1960s, when the rest of the investment public finally caught on in the 70s and 80s. So that was his mantra. He was always going and looking out, you know, looking for bargains around the world wherever he could find them. And he would often have to sit and wait for a long time. So he was a deeply patient man and a very mentally disciplined uh, individual. Scott, first of all, I hear a very much a conservative uh, person economically in that he, as you said, would not spend money, would not invest anything other than monies that he already had, as opposed to people who uh, do very wild speculation and, and buy on credit, which, of course, when, when that happens in an emotional stock market can lead to uh, major swings in the market, including the Great Depression. Sure. Um, so he he operated very much based upon looking at what he actually had, and yeah. um, and then moved forward carefully. Now the second piece is that he was, as you say, purchasing bargains, and this is a subject that I find very interesting in terms of some of the um, you know the mechanisms of that. How mm-hmm. do you take a look? I mean, how does somebody like a a, a Templeton or or anyone who is um, an investor? How do they determine what what is real about a company? Do they go out and kick the tires? I mean, how how do you do that in re- in reality? Well, there's no question that you have to, you know, delve relatively deeply into the enterprise and understand, you know, the nature of the business, the people behind it, and, you know, to some degree as much as you can detect the validity of the the numbers being reported and so on. And so, yeah, I mean, I think early on in his career, he spent an awful lot of time visiting companies sitting down with management teams, and he was a tremendous judge of character and what made up a person. He really studied people. He understood, and this kind of you know draws upon a, a really funny anecdote about him as a poker player. He was actually mm-hmm. quite an expert poker player and funded part of his college tuition at Yale by winnings at the poker table. This was you know, during the Depression. So he was someone who could come in and more or less uh, size up another individual quickly, kind of figure out what motivated them, some sense of what their integrity was. And they were often, you know, gauged in conversations that were a little bit off the mark, you know, finding out what they did as hobbies, you know, what they did in other pursuits of their life, what they really cared about. And so, yeah, he was a tremendous judge of character in that sense. And uh, he always, you know, advocated having, you know, people with their feet on the ground in these in these emerging market countries where he was going into. He always had, you know, his kind of network of experts and analysts, and he went and did, you know, research himself, you know, for instance, in in Japan back in the late 1950s. So he was a very much, you know, he could cut to the chase. He could cut through the veneers, and he could figure out kind of what the core, you know, the core elements of an investment were and figure out if that was, you know, something that he was interested in. But as far as the – go ahead. No, I'm sorry. Um, I was just – Go ahead. Sorry. Was uh, was Templeton an advocate of um, free trade policy? I mean, it sounds to me like he was one of the first, well, not the first, certainly. I mean, probably in America, the first business that really internationalized was the Rockefeller, you know, oil back in the late 19th century. But uh, it sounds like he was very much involved with, um, you know, the international market, uh, the multinational corporations. Absolutely. There is, I mean, no question that he viewed, you know, investing in conjunction with free markets and part of a broader kind of overall philosophy on what underpins progress in a society. You know, he wanted 
open societies where people were free to think, free to express themselves, free to create. He thought that you know, creativity was one of the most important virtues that could underpin a society such as the United States, um, you know, back during all you know, the twentieth century when he was very active as an investor. He wanted to see uh societies where all of those elements of creativity could flourish because creativity is the core element of entrepreneurship. And entrepreneurship is what brings us new ideas, new goods and services, people thinking and problem solving and advancing society as a whole. So he thought that as an investor, he could play a critical role in advancing free enterprise by capitalizing firms in other countries. He thought it was, you know, on some level, I mean, look, at the end of the day, he was an investor trying to make money. But he also saw kind of a humanitarian element to free enterprise and what it did for societies when it took hold. And he was a fervent believer in that. In fact, if you go and look at the John Templeton Foundation, he d- he gave all of his wealth away at the, in- at the end of his life towards his foundation. And it supports basically three verticals. So progress and spirituality, character development, and the promotion of free enterprise. Because he thought that was one of the most important elements of the advancement of man. You know, he just mm. he always cited the progress that was achieved in, in the 20th century and how grateful he was we should be for that and how grateful everyone should be for those advance, advancements. Because if you look back over the couple of thousand years preceding that, the standard of living, you know, would only double every couple of hundred years, not once a generation or once every six years the way we see in China today. So, yes, he was, you know, that was a very, very, you know, big deal to him. Yeah, it sounds to me like he's very much in the footsteps of some of America's great um, industrialists and, and, and investors, people like Andrew Carnegie, who uh, also gave away his entire wealth to build, you know, opera houses and the arts and, and, and foundations. And and I think that uh, people like Templeton are very much the unsung heroes of American history. I mean, it's, it's their sure. wealth that was used to, to build um, what we have. I mean, it's not... Uh, it, you know, it's uh, contrary to current trendy belief. It was not the government. The government didn't build that. No, of course <laughs> you know, not. It was uh, it was people <laughs> like Templeton and people right. who uh, who you know who are not this this kind of hackneyed image that that people have presented of uh, of successful people as being greedy. No, uh, no in That's fact, right. he uh, he was uh, you know he understood as I think most. Not all, but most uh, holders of great wealth who create the wealth more likely as opposed to inherit it, mm-hmm. that, uh, that concomitant with that wealth is uh, public service. And, and they want yeah. to do that, and they want to do it in a way, I think, of, of David Koch here in Boston. Sure. You know, even though he's, he's viewed as, as a demon by the left, here in Boston he is extremely admired, including by liberals and the Boston Globe, because – he gave away almost a you know a hundred million dollars of his own personal money writing checks sure. to uh, to build uh, medical medical infrastructure at MIT and and companies. It's a topic that interests him. You know That's he right. he's a cancer survivor and he wants to. This is what he's focusing on. So it's people like that who um, really have created the capital and and the use of the capital in a way that's benefited our society. Yeah, there there's no question. You know, I think when I think of what truly makes uh, you know, a, a really successful capitalist at the end of the day, they're underpinned by certain virtues and certain orientations 
towards filling the needs of others. I mean, that was something that, you know, Sir John often remarked on as far as, you know, what it took to be successful in business. He he had a very kind of simple mantra. He said, find a need and fill it. And the way you do that is you become a service or a servant even to your clients and to your customers. So all of your thoughts are oriented towards making these people's lives better, whatever your pursuit is. So in his case, he thought, well, I have these um, – you know, these certain abilities in math and finance and economics, I think what I can do with my life, the way I should orient it, is towards helping people in matters of wealth. So I'll use all of my talents towards that. And, you know, what really kind of illuminated how, you know, that con- you hear these things kind of, you know, spoken off the cuff frequently, but what really illuminated that to me was, this was uh, many years ago, six or seven years ago, my wife and I, we're traveling to Greenville, South Carolina, and we stayed at a Hampton Inn. And my wife uh, was showing the um, the hotel manager her ID, and he looked at it and he said, "Templeton, you're not related to John Templeton, are you?" And she said, "Well, yes. You know, why do you ask?" And he said, "If you see him, tell him I said thank you, thank mm-hmm. you, because when I invested in the Templeton Growth Fund." He put my children through college and my grandchildren through college. And that's the side of capitalism that is not often you know, revealed to the rest of the public, that really a successful capitalist is someone who's participating in a very willful exchange where both yeah. parties get exactly what they want and both are happy and better off for it. And I think that's what gets lost in all of these discussions. There's a oh, yeah. broad mischaracterization of capitalists and what they do. You know, it reminds me of uh, stories we hear about Peter Lynch, another great Boston uh, capitalist and the founder sure. of Fidelity. He'd be stopped sure. at the airport by somebody who, uh, you know, like a, a basically like a blue collar guy who who's, who hugs him and says, you know, I put in, you know, maybe a hundred dollars a month for a while. That's all I could afford into mm-hmm. my Fidelity account, and today I was able to put my kids through college. That's right. So, so yeah, I mean, this is, these are the great benefactors of. Um, of society. Now, that's not to say that everyone who is rich or everyone who is in business is good. Uh, no. You know, there's no such thing. I mean, I think that anyone who understands the basic functions of of the free market realizes that it Absolutely. it doesn't doesn't pretend that there's any such thing as utopia. Doesn't advocate. No. It. You know, in fact, that's the very definition of freedom that we are free to sin. So you that's have right. people who are bad, but nevertheless, even when they're bad. The very act of holding capital in in the private sector is good because mm-hmm. the money has to go either one of two ways. It either goes into consumption, in right. which case they're employing people and they're buying stuff which people have to build and they're buying services, or sure. they're going to put it somewhere. They're going to put it in a bank or they're going to put it in – unless they're sticking it under their pillow, they're putting it into some kind of a, a, a vehicle where it is used as leverage and it is used as equity for others who are producing things. So, you know, the system is such that the more capital accumulates in the private sector, the more successful everyone is. I think that uh, President John F. Kennedy said it best when he uh, had the largest tax cut since World War II, and he said, a rising tide raises all boats. No question. Sure. Absolutely. No, I mean, you, you definitely, this is something that, you know, want to encourage. And the people you've been mentioning, I, I would actually consider some of the true heroes of, of society, to be quite frank about it. 
And I think what's interesting about Sir John's case and what a number of these uh, interviews, the, the people I interviewed, what they what they remarked about Sir John was the reason he made such an impression on me was it wasn't so much that he was so gifted as an investor and you know made so much money for his clients. It was who he was outside of that you know sphere, right. and he kind of led a life that just about anyone would approve of. And I think you find that oftentimes in these you know very you know kind of wildly successful people, you find that. You know they're they're good people at the end of the day. They're not villains, or you know they're not trying to make money at, at someone else's expense. The beauty of the free market system is it eventually roots those people out and takes care of them because no one will do business with them anymore once they're you know discovered. That's right. Okay, the website is what would John Templeton say? Uh, John, what, what would John Templeton say? Dot com. My yes. guest is Scott Phillips. Uh, Scott, you know one of the one of the issues, probably one of the only issues that really, really bothered me in this last presidential campaign was the fact that um, Mitt Romney, who is governor of my, was governor of my state and whom I've met many times, uh, that he was demonized for being rich and he was right. demonized for being a successful businessman, and that people, I think that that more than anything actually resonated with people. They they looked at him and they said. He's rich and successful. That's bad. He's right. uh, somehow taking something away from me. He's greedy because of this, right. and that this is a bad thing. You know, people at the same time on the on the conservative side accused President Obama of being a communist, and that's also not right. But nevertheless, right. at least we understood that the accusation of communism was bad. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. nobody was saying you know he wasn't standing up and owning that. I mean, it was sort of like yeah. Whereas right. with Mitt Romney, he was being accused of something that we traditionally and conventionally should and certainly should think of as good. He right. had created wealth. I mean, he had employed hundreds, you, know, you know, tens of thousands of people at, at companies like Staples. And, and to take a look and, and criticize him for the mistakes that his company made is just a complete ignorance of how freedom works and how the free market works. It wasn't deliberate. You know, that's right. what, you know, when you go out and you take risks, you know, you, you make mistakes, and sometimes you may not always do the right thing, but for the most part, you have to take a look at the whole record. And, sure. uh, you know, it just, it makes me wonder really where our culture is going. I know I keep hearing Rush Limbaugh talk about the uninformed voter, and I think he's right on to something with that. But yeah. I think it's much deeper than that. I think it goes to, in a sense, perhaps a, a, a tipping point in terms of how we perceive ourselves and and what how we understand who we are sure now i agree. i think you hit the nail on the head i think it is a fundamental lack of understanding of of what it takes to create wealth and uh you know the virtues that we discussed earlier that underpin that and um you know if you don't understand that then you're going to be susceptible to you know these kind of mischaracterizations that he's greedy or he did it at the expense of others or you know it, all, all of these things kind of get dredged up, and I think that it kind of supports a view that, you know, the government is uh, the more important piece of the equation in our lives, which a lot of people, you know, I you know personally fundamentally kind of disagree with that. Um, but, you know, they present those arguments, and if there's not enough, um, you know, fact-checking and other work behind it or calling right. people out on inaccuracies, you know, what can you do? So, right, and I think that Mitt Romney did a he did a very poor job of not stepping up and presenting the goodness of his record in business, and, right. and he sh- he should have 
trumpeted that proudly and, and, and sure. discussed the virtues of it instead of sort of, you know, kind of you know, dribbling the ball on it, which was a disservice. Now, yeah. on the other side of the coin, of course, uh, you know, we, we could talk about whether or not or to what degree the government does affect the free market. And I think that it's safe to say that President Obama, his, basically the, the, the entire mantra of his office, of his, of his tenure in office so far, has been the importance of raising taxes and increasing the debt. You know, the sure. great heroic work of, I've accomplished a raising of the debt ceiling, and, and that we're supposed right. to applaud. He's come, overcome the terrible people that don't want to increase the debt ceiling and the right. terrible people who don't want to raise taxes, allegedly on the rich, but everybody knows that it's on everybody, that, mm-hmm. that the, the very rich are probably not going to pay any more taxes. It's, it's going to – it's a no. tax increase. But even yeah. so, this seems to be the general uh, trend, and, and you know maybe it's maybe because I'm here in Massachusetts, I see a microcosm of it when mm-hmm. I see the governor of our state raising taxes, and the Boston Globe, day after day, going out with articles about all the wonderful ways we as citizens should think about how to get the government more money. That this right. is a good thing, and, and you know this is the discussion, not whether or not they should. So mm-hmm. I mean, I wonder. With, with that kind of policy in place and this kind of great and glorious effort to raise the size of the government, there's no talk about cutting it, and to mm-hmm. raise the cost of running that big government, where, where, where does that leave us in, in the coming years? With, with less freedom. Um, I mean, that, that's the answer. And yep. there are a number of ways to think of that. Because, you know, when the government extends these, let's just call them goodies in various forms, these, these short-term benefits, uh, cash payments, um, you know, food stamps. And I don't want to take away from, you know, people who truly need, you know, right. assistance in, in, in some ways. But the fact of the matter is, based on the studies that, that I've seen, is that there are all kinds of people who don't really need uh, a number of these services who are more or less, you know, kind of tapping into that system. And so, you know, one uh, thing you know, one I guess one example of, of how this is intruding into the free marketplace is that, you know, for a resourceful individual who can figure out all the different, you know, programs um, to tap into, uh, they can make roughly $43,000 a year. And that's in direct competition with a number of jobs out in the economy that can't be filled because, right. you know, here the government is actually competing with uh, the private market in that sense. And then the other unfortunate side is that anytime you enter into one of these exchanges, you're receiving something, but you're also giving up something. And that something that you're giving up is freedom, unfortunately. All of this right. money is being borrowed. And, and you're giving up people, someone else's freedom. That's right. We're giving up our freedom or you know, children's freedom, grandchildren's freedom, because we have creditors on the other side of this debt. And you know that makes that puts us in a very kind of vulnerable situation, which I think if people understood that better, you know they they might be more reluctant to you know vote vote for these programs or, or support them. Well, it's difficult it's just, though when you're uh, actually getting the, getting the check in the yeah, mail, and that, and of right. course that's it's part hard. of the um, the game here. And and when you say that someone can get up to forty forty something thousand dollars a year in government assistance if they know how to scam the system. That right. doesn't even take into account the probably the additional thirty, forty thousand dollars that we the taxpayers are spending on what I heard recently referred to as the social industrial complex, which is all of the cadres of social service experts and workers and, and whatnot. We're talking in the in the realm of four to five million people 
who are living on taxpayers' money as managers of people who are getting the money to paid not to work. And, right. uh, you know, I think that it was Milton Friedman back in the 1980s who said that um, back then the estimate was about $60,000 per family uh, that it costs the government or the taxpayers to support. He said we would be better off just giving them a check for 60000 bucks. Rather than That's give it right. to the government, you know, and, and let That's them right. Just cut out the they, they distribute it among themselves, and then they throw off the table what's left. Yeah. And uh, but but in the broader sense, people, you know, this is not about uh, welfare. It's not about what President Reagan referred to as helping the quote truly needy, right. which was a comment that there were howls of rage from the left when he said it. That's something that I think conservatives and they conservatives do support means right. to actually help people who actually need the assistance because they're right. starving, because they're homeless, because they're in trouble. This That's is right. about main, this is essentially about a tra- a trend that I think really started to accelerate during the so-called great society of of Lyndon Johnson where mm-hmm. we are now paying people not to work. We're That's paying right. women to have children and mm-hmm. giving them more money when they do. This is strictly social engineering. It has nothing to do with uh, actually helping people who need help. And right. concomitant with the expense of it, you have, um, and, and not to mention the development of a permanent underclass that is dependent upon a particular political organization to, to perpetrate the wealth, you have a dislocation in the economy. Because right. you've got people, you know, you've got a, a, a contraction in the amount of capital that is invested in, in, in developing the kind of jobs that would help people actually go to work. That's right. That's right. You're pulling money out of the free market that could be invested towards, you know, projects and entities that are long-term focused versus, you know, consuming today. You know, it, it's That's just right. a matter of exchanging a long-term orientation or future-mindedness for short, short-term thinking and consumption. And you, it's hard to see a society progress under the auspice of, you know, uh, consumption and short-term thinking. It is, and yet we're already being confronted with all the euphemisms that are implying that the Republicans in Congress, the right-wing Republicans, are not interested in compromise, or they're not interested in coalitions, or they're not. There's all these other words that are used because they don't want to agree to a further tax raising, a further right. debt, which is already up to 16 trillion dollars. People don't understand the consequences of that. Right. And uh, and, and uh, that, that somehow they are you know to blame for this. I mean, I think that uh, on the issue of like the gridlock that we hear about, you know, the, the gridlock is there because you know we don't have a good leader who knows how to get them something done, right? Not because of Congress, right, right. So, uh, Scott, where where do you see things going? I would say you know in general, with the uh, do do you see a um, any kind of a balance. I mean, I think the economy is improving in spite of this president. It is. At least I it mean, seems that way. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, you still have lots and lots and lots of people who wake up every day and say, how can I make things better? What right. else can I do to make my life better, make other people's lives better? And this is going on all over the world. And I think that's the one thing that we can't lose sight of. I mean, you have – People waking up and saying the exact same thing in places like China, in India, in the rest of you know Asia, and the right now the the standard of living there is so uh, low on a per capita basis compared to our standard of living 
But they, I mean, they if they continue down this path and you know stay towards it, and they, there'll, there'll be interruptions along the way. There'll be something, you know, kind of devastating that'll look, you know, terrible, like a terrible recession or maybe even a depression along the way. And that happened in this country too. Sure. But at the end of the day, uh, you know, you're talking about uh, places where the standard of living is doubling about every six years. If you look at a country like China, so there's a tremendous amount of uh, progress occurring in those societies, and that's something that every investor can and should be tapping into in some way, shape, or form. Whether they want to invest in, you know, firms who are actually located in the emerging markets or as proxy through multinational firms here in the United States, I mean, there is so much uh, economic progress to be realized. It, it's kind of exciting in a way, and you know, we, we get uh, it, it, it's easy to, you know, kind of zero in on the things we're seeing here in this country and, and the negative trend. But, you know, I think overall there's still plenty of opportunities to be had as an investor. And so we can't lose sight of that either. We can't get too pessimistic or or one-sided. Oh, absolutely. I mean, in spite of whatever's going on in the government, we we do still have the basic – Americans are still basically traditionally steeped in the concepts of freedom. There's enough of us. Sure. You know, the election actually was very close. You know, there are still governors. I think that there's a lot of interesting things going on the state level, local level, and mm-hmm. that, uh, that that most Americans understand, even people that are, you know, frankly on welfare understand that the money has to, you know, the capital has to come from somewhere. Right. You know, so, so they do support uh, uh, the system overall and that there are opportunities. Scott, where, where can people look, in a sense, more practically for, I mean, if you can discuss this, for for various um, areas of the economy that that you think might be growing in the next year or two. Well, you know, one of the uh, the funny things about us as investors, Chuck, is that we follow you know Sir John's methodology as best we can. So we're mm-hmm. often buying stocks, you know, businesses that are deeply out of favor. <laughs> and so, right. you know, when you say best, you know, Sir John's. Uh, simple response to where is the outlook best he said no people are thinking about it wrong where is the outlook most miserable because that's where you'll find a bargain and so you know we're invested in a number of different um you know businesses and corporations all over the world from uh kind of a um contrarian view we like uh coal producers in the powder river basin Uh, this is Mm -hmm. cloud peak energy um peabody energy we think you know they trade at deep discounts to their intrinsic value, and that the source of demand is coming from Asia, and that eventually, you know, if you look out over the next three to five years, there'll be port additions on the West Coast that will unlock supply and demand, so to speak. So that's an opportunity. I should also mention, you know, from a compliance standpoint, we own, uh, you know, those businesses. Mm-hmm. But also, I think there are tremendous opportunities in protein producers, and these are just simple companies uh, like Tyson or Smithfield. Or if you go down to uh, you know Brazil, you can look at firms there, Minerva, Brazil Foods. There's so much uh, future protein consumption to be had during the next 10 to 20 years that that's another simple way to play the development of the emerging market consumer. And so there are all types of little proxies you know, around the world that if you're you're careful and you look closely, you can find different ways to, you know, tap into that, that growth potential without getting into, you know, kind of a, a speculative type firm, in our opinion. Right. No, you're looking at at the real world. You're looking at what is it that people use, what are what are they going to be using more of. Right. And um and that's that's really uh 
you know, a solid, conservative, uh, level-headed approach to um, to the economy and to the market. And uh, sure. I, I applaud you for that. Uh, Scott, where can people go to find out more about you and your books and your, your articles? Oh, sure. Uh, LaurenTempletonInvestments.com. Uh, you know, we have a website for our registered investment advisor, and there's a, um, a sh- uh, page where you can sign up for our free newsletter. Uh, it goes out monthly. It's completely free. We don't use anybody's information. We don't sell it. It's just, you know, a way for us to, to share our views on these matters. And, uh, you know, of course, the Templeton Touch uh, is available on Amazon. It's also available through templetonpress.org, which is a great site, uh, you know, and resource for other writings um, on or by Sir John. So, you know, those three outlets are are pretty good. Scott Phillips, I want to thank you for joining me this afternoon. It's been a great pleasure. Thanks for having me, Chuck. I appreciate it. You bet. Thank you. All right, we're going to take a break. You're listening to Chuck Morse Speaks. This is Chuck Morse, your host. We'll be right back. Join the program, 347-327-9849 is the number. Come on down, 347-327-9849. Chuck Morse, Chuck Morse Speaks. My guest just now was economist and author Scott Phillips. Uh, We discussed uh, economic policy in general. We talked about investment policy specifically uh, with regard to, uh, to what those guys are up to. Uh, very, very interesting stuff, in my opinion, and very inspiring. Um, the website that uh, you might want to go to to get more information about Scott Phillips and about uh, about uh, John Templeton's philosophy is whatwouldjohntempletonsay.com. John Templeton, of course, was the founder of the Templeton Fund, and uh, there's a lot of uh, great, great articles there. Um, that that lead you to um, developing a, a pretty solid uh, and practical uh, approach to investment specifically, but also just toward a general understanding of the economy, uh, which is uh, something that, um, well, it used to be taught in in school back in the old days, you know, even as far early as elementary school, but it's generally not discussed today, just like they don't talk about the Constitution of the United States either. You know, it's interesting, most people now, to show how, just to touch upon my guest yesterday, Dr. Samuel Blumenfeld's ideas, um, that, that most people in this country have no idea what's in the Constitution of the United States. They have no idea with regard to the separation of powers. They think that, for example, that the president, this is quite common, even among you know college age, even among professionals, even among some Congress people, <laughs> that they think that the president or, makes laws, or they think that the Supreme Court makes laws. Now, I'm not suggesting that they don't try to make laws, but they don't know anything about the U.S. Constitution, if they think that, because the Constitution clearly says in one of the most famous uh, 
uh, comments that only Congress shall make laws, that the president then enforces the laws and the president can suggest laws, and that the Supreme Court can look at the laws and decide whether or not they are constitutional. But only in our system, in our brilliant system of government, only the, the great hall of the people, the Congress, people that we elect to represent us directly, uh, only they make laws. And um, that's uh, you know where they can debate them and where you have people from all over the United States represented uh, from each region, each district, and, and where they get together and they, uh, they, they debate and they argue and they, they, they eventually craft laws that are the closest approximation possible of the will of the people and at the same time that those laws are conforming with the Constitution so that we don't have the government involved with um, stepping outside of its purview. Speaking of stepping outside of its purview, this is a developing story right from the Washington Times, Obama recess appointments unconstitutional. Now, look, President Obama has done what presidents have been doing both Democrat and Republican in, in, in a more accelerated manner in recent decades, and that is issuing executive orders that cross the border between simple either ceremonial type executive orders or executive orders that are very specific to the executive branch and not to the government as a whole or to the people. Those are reserved for Congress. And issuing executive orders. And I think that uh, it's it's a trend that I, you know, it started in earnest really with Franklin Roosevelt when he came in to deal with the Depression and he declared a national state of emergency. Congress approved the state of emergency. If you if To get information about that, you can simply read his inaugural address in 1933 where he lays it out in no uncertain terms that because of the, the great economic emergency, he will be assuming emergency powers. And he asked for those powers from Congress, and he was given them. And since then, the presidency has become much more enhanced in terms of its ability to uh, to create uh, extra constitutional um, entities. And, in fact, it was through that state of emergency decree that Franklin Roosevelt was able to create all of those alphabet agencies, and many of which were thrown out by the Supreme Court as unconstitutional. But nevertheless he derived the authority to uh, take the United States to, to ban the right to own uh, own gold and uh, gold coin and, and, and the creation of all these regulations on business uh, under the so-called NRA, which was eventually declared unconstitutional, and, and other measures. And since then, there's been a gradual increase in executive power and in executive orders. Uh, I think that uh, the, the real before you know before roosevelt the only two real executive orders that i can point to that that kind of bordered on on what we see today were thomas jefferson's purchase of the louisiana purchase which of course was the greatest real estate deal in history in which he went right out and did it and the emancipation proclamation which president lincoln at the time understood would have to be ratified by Congress, but he issued it anyways and uh, did so as an executive order with the understanding that once the uh, insurrection was defeated in the southern states, the southern states would then be allowed to come back into the Union only if they ratified 
the uh, the 13th and 14th Amendments, which contained the Emancipation Proclamation. And so it was done in, in a sense, you know, yes, he used executive power, but it was under the understanding that eventually it would have to revert back to um, to congressional power. The other thing that Lincoln did at the time that, that was a direct uh, presidential order was the issuance of greenbacks to help pay for the uh, the Civil War. But those greenbacks were eventually redeemed in the form of gold, or at least gold backing, in 1869 by Congress. So... Yeah, and the IRS was also uh, created under Lincoln, but then it was rescinded under Grant. Um, these things were extra to extra legal, but um, obviously Abraham Lincoln really was dealing in an emergency situation. And once the emergency was over, uh, pretty much the country went back to the status quo ante, although there was an increase in power in Washington because the 14th Amendment essentially made the Bill of Rights the law of the land as opposed to simply applying to the federal government. So sure, there was a there was a part of the, the the after effects of the Civil War was a further federalization of the government and that's not necessarily a bad thing. Um it was it was actually quite necessary. But nevertheless the the whole phenomena of executive orders has reached a very high pitch in, in the Obama administration. Um I think that you know George Bush was criticized for executive orders that uh, existed around the USA Patriot Act, which, of course, is now Obama's act because he renewed it. But Obama has expanded on it. I mean, he now has, uh, through executive order, he's authorized the use of wiretaps. He's authorized the use of uh, listening in on cell phone conversations. He's authorized the use of drones. You know, these things actually exceed much more anything that George Bush did and I think that in Bush's case, again, like Lincoln, he was responding to a genuine national emergency, the attack on 9/11. And in that regard, I think he operated pretty conservatively. You know, sure, you could point to some isolated mistakes. You know, I know that I've heard about some guys sitting in a phone room listening. Yes, but really, for the you know, for, for a big nation like us, I think that those uh, those those orders were done very prudently and very much in accord with the actual emergency that was existing on the ground. What I'm worried about now is the, the furtherance of those orders as the emergency has receded, only in that we have in place now much more a much more efficient Homeland Security operation, and we've, we, we've kind of put all these things in place, and yet the acceleration of such orders is, 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 is moving on. Uh, last year there was an executive order, for example, and uh, I don't have the number in front of me, but you can look it up, where the president issued an order that under, under the guise of some emergency, which is very undefined, the president could take immediate control of all means of production. Now, does that sound like something to our listeners? Public ownership of the means of production sounds like communism. It's, it's the actual different, dictionary definition of socialism at least the dictionary definition before the probably the most recent edition of the uh dictionary has has changed it a little bit and they've they've kind of tidied it up but it's it's been the the conventional definition of socialism that under some guise of emergency the government controls everything that was done by executive order not by congress um and i remember right after the 2010 election 
when the Republicans took control of the House, uh, there was a lot of talk of Obama governing by executive orders. Well, this is right coming off the press today. This is in the Washington Post. It's actually, uh, I believe, written by Jeff Cooner, my colleague over at WRKO here in Boston and, and a writer uh, for the Washington Times, excuse me, of course. In a case... In a case freighted with major constitutional implications, a federal appeals court on Friday overturned President Obama's controversial recess appointments from last year, ruling he abused his powers and acted when the Senate was not actually in a recess. The three-judge panel ruling is a major blow to Obama. The judges ruled that the appointments he made to the National Labor Relations Board are illegal and the board no longer has a quorum to operate. But the ruling has even broader constitutional significance, with the judges arguing that the president's recess appointment powers don't apply to intercession appointments, those made when Congress has left town for a few days or weeks. The judges signaled the power only applies after Congress has adjourned a session permanently which in modern times usually means only at the end of the year. If the ruling withstands Supreme Court scrutiny, it would dramatically constrain presidents in the future. You know, now this is the kind of thing that, I mean, I applaud this, whether it be a liberal, conservative, Democrat, Republican, but it's the kind of thing that the left, to show how situational they are versus fundamental, they would have applauded had this been George Bush in, in, in the presidency or had it been Reagan. You know, it would have been, yes, finally, the government, you know, the, their powers are being curtailed. But the fact that it's happening to Obama, the great leader, there's going to be a lot of wringing of, of you know, gnashing of teeth and wringing of hands. How dare they? they gonna, I could just see it now. I don't know who. I'm not sure what 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 this who the judge was that uh, that wrote this ruling, but I could just see it now. Right wing, you know, people and all that. I would argue that whether it be liberal, conservative, Democrat, or Republican, this is good news. This is how the system is supposed to work. This is what the Constitution calls for: the third branch of government, the judiciary, the federal the federal court system has ruled that uh, the president, the uh, the executive branch, has overstepped its powers based on the Constitution. It's a simple reading of the Constitution. And I think it clearly is the case. You know, I mean, the, the Constitution allows for a recess appointment, but only when the Congress is, in fact, in recess, which actually is only during Christmas. And uh, I don't even think they should go into recess then. I mean, especially when you have a lame duck administration, there's a lot of really mischievous things that can go on during that, that period. But putting that aside, I remember the controversy now when he made those appointments, that, that Congress was actually in session. And that, sure, it was a bare-knuckled grasp for unconstitutional power. All right, let's take a look at the rest of this. The judges signaled the power only applies after Congress has adjourned a session permanently. Again, I'm reading this again, but it's worth it. Which in modern times usually means only at the end of a year. And the court ruled that the only vacancies that the president can use his powers on are ones that arise when the Senate is in one of those end-of-session breaks, 
that would all but eliminate the list of positions the president could fill with his recent powers, recess powers. But the court said that the ruling that its duty was not to speed up government, but to hold to constitutional principles. Now, you see, this is where the, uh, the federal court should be. They shouldn't be considering politics. They shouldn't be doing like what John Roberts did, who I, I consider to be almost a traitor, considering public relations, how the Congress, how the Supreme Court looks, whether or not people like them. They should be looking at the law. You know, they should be judging blindly the constitutionality of an issue, whether or not it's in the jurisdiction, whether or not it actually is in the Constitution, not whether or not they feel good about it. You know, like what Roberts did with the, uh, the health care ruling, deciding that the, the mandate was a tax, when everyone knows it wasn't, including him, but he felt it was good PR. In fact, that's what he was on record as saying. It's good for the country. Nonsense. That's activism. That's not what the Supreme Court's supposed to do. I think he should have been impeached for that, but that's not going to happen. Anyway, putting that aside, what, this, what the federal court has done in this case is exactly right. The attitude is exactly right. What is the law? Not what people want it to be, not what people think it should be, but what it is. And if people want to change the law, read your Constitution. There's a way to go about it. You get your congressman or you get your senator to introduce a new law. It gets debated. And then if there are enough fellow members who want to agree with it, who agree with it, it gets voted by a majority and it becomes the law. Then it undergoes scrutiny in terms of the president, who has the option of vetoing it. And then it has another layer of scrutiny from the Supreme Court if it's challenged on a constitutional ground. That is how the system is supposed to work. It is supposed to work slowly. It is set up by the Founding Fathers. I heard David Horowitz make reference to this, very inspiring reference, on Patrick O'Heffernan's show. That the Founding Fathers, who were conservatives, they set up the system so that things would not be changed too quickly, but that things would, uh, you know, the power would rest in the hands of, of the free people, and that government would have to be restrained. The whole idea was restraint. That's, what, that's a good thing. You know, that's what the left likes to call gridlock. That's how the system is supposed to work. It's supposed to be gridlocked. These are very profound questions that can affect our freedoms, our futures. You want to have the government sitting on these things and debating them for long periods of time because you want them to get it right, and you want to make sure that it's legal. And uh, yeah, I think that Horowitz very brilliantly pointed out that the Founding Fathers, fortunately, almost miraculously, were overwhelmingly conservatives, um, and that they were responding to the left of their day. I know that it was before Karl Marx, and I know it wasn't like classic you know, left, but they, they were contemporaries with the French Revolution. I mean, you know, the, the, the Constitution was ratified in, in 1788-89. The, the French Revolution actually occurred pretty much in 1793, I think it was, or 1789. Right around the same time, you had Louis XVI basically create the, uh, the, the National Assembly and, and become a constitutional monarch. 
that was the French Revolution. But then, of course, the, re- the left was able to subvert that and take over and create the Reign of Terror, something that didn't happen in this country because we were lucky. We had conservatives. We had uh, people who wanted to be free of this sort of thing. And by the way, the French people themselves were conservative. They, they were inspired by the American Revolution, and that's what they thought they were getting. That's not how it worked out. But anyway, so this is a great victory. This is a great victory for our system. Uh, a federal court has denied President Obama the ability to make these executive order appointments. Uh, let's just take a look a little bit further here. The court said in the ruling that its duty was not to speed up government, but to hold to constitutional principles. I love that. If some administrative inefficiency results from our construction of the original meaning of the Constitution, that does not empower us to change what the Constitution commands, the judge wrote. Presidents of both parties have used the controversial power in recent decades, but the three-judge panel said they concluded that that was not what the founders intended. The dearth of intercession appointments in the years and decades following the ratification of the Constitution speaks far more impressively than the history of recent presidential exercises of supposed power to make such appointments, the judge wrote. And by the way, George Bush made these appointments as well. He made some good ones, too, in the case of um, of Bolton. But, you know, I think that it's wrong either way. Recent presidents are doing no more than interpreting the Constitution. While we recognize that all branches of government must of necessity exercise their understanding of the Constitution in order to perform their duties faithfully thereto, Ultimately, it is our role to discern the authoritative meaning of the supreme law. And I think, I love that. I mean, this is great. And I love the fact that they view their role as to interpret the meaning of the law, not make the law. Isn't that amazing? I, you know, this is, uh, this really restores, you know, my faith in the system when you see this. The judges said the recess power was created for a time when Congress met only a few months out of the year and was designed for the president to fill vacancies during the long periods and Congress was out. I mean, I think that back back in the day, Congress would be out for like three months, five months sometimes. I mean, you know, they you know it was difficult to get transportation. You know, to get. I mean, I, I, I know I've read the diary of John Adams. From, for John Adams to get from Boston to Washington take, it took a week. You know, so, you know, it was a big deal to, 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 to assemble. So that, that was really what it was about. That was what the recess appointment idea was about, because in the meantime, you might have a, an office that had gone vacant and you would have to fill it. So that, that was the purpose of it, not to, to circumvent Congress. Not to, say that that, not to say that that might not have happened anyways back then. Anyway, the NLRB, National Labor Relations Board, said it was not yet ready to respond to the ruling on Friday morning. The Justice Department didn't respond to a request for comment. The case is likely to end up before the Supreme Court, which is good, especially since we still have enough patriots on that court that they will understand how to do this, I hope. Although, you know, I'm disappointed with Roberts. And it turns on the definition of what the Constitution means when it says recess. 
Last January, I know, either, they, either they're in recess or they're not. Last January, Mr. Obama named union lawyer Richard Griffin and Labor Department official Sharon Block, both Democrats, and a Republican NLRB lawyer, Terrence Flynn, to the Labor Board using his recess powers. He also named Richard Cordray to head the new Consumer Financial Protection Bureau using those same powers. The Cordray appointment was not part of the court case decided Friday, but has been challenged separately in another suit. So obviously that would be affected. Noel Canning, a bottling company, sued the NLRB arguing that a rule issued by the new board was illegal since the recess appointments were unconstitutional. Good for them. Senate Republicans, led by Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, joined the suit. Great. Um, you know, I, I mean, I think that the whole idea of a, a National Labor Relations Board in and of itself, whether it had validity back in the late 1930s when it was created, it, it's not as relevant today. I, You know, look, I am pro-union, at least pro-private union. Um, I, I'm a former union guy. I, I, I admire unions. But I think that unions are, in a sense, the victim of their own success. Uh, you know, the um, you know people have a right to assemble. They have a right to, I believe, collectively bargain. But they don't necessarily have a right to a closed shop, as we've seen. There are there are many states which have right to work laws, which means that the union has to compete for labor, and should. Um, and then I think a lot of the support for the closed shop, it, it's not because union, it's not because working conditions are so terrible now. Not because salaries are so bad. I think, if anything, non-union workers have better, have have probably a better off because the companies they work for want to keep the union out, so they give them better benefits. That's been my experience. I think at this point it has more to do with uh, the fact that um, union dues go to help Democratic and liberal candidates run for office, and that they and they want to keep the money coming. If you take a look, for example, at the top ten organizations in America that donate to political campaigns, I think at least six of them are unions, probably more. And that all, I mean, I think that it's safe to say that probably 95% of that money goes to elect liberal Democrats. So this is all, it's all about money for them, I believe, at this point. And that's what they're looking at. Anyway, we've reached pretty much the end of the program, so I want to thank everyone for listening. Chuck Morse, Chuck Morse Speaks, Monday through Friday, 1 to 2 p.m. Uh, I shall return Monday, starting in March. My program will be nationally syndicated. This is big, big news for me on the IRN USA radio network, which means we'll be live in about maybe 10 to 15 radio stations around the country. You can check out my book, my book, my book, The Monkey Trial, Evolutionary Politics in the Post-Industrial Age, Post-Traditional Age by Chuck Morse available on the Amazon Kindle. And have a very nice weekend, everybody. Thanks so much for listening.